I really want them to first and foremost focus on their own plan of attack, no matter who the, who the, who the hitter is, and then layer on little bits of information about the hitter's weaknesses that we may be able to expose if it lines up with our plan of attack already. Hey, this is Ryan from More Than Velocity Podcast. I'm here with Jordan Osagira, the legendary Jordan Osagira. And uh, we got a special guest in Mickey Callaway. I'm so excited for him to be here. And interestingly, uh, the three of us were all together with the Angels during one of the most challenging years of baseball in 2020, where we had to handle COVID um, and a lot of the dynamics around that. But um, this is going to be an exciting podcast because not only do we have somebody we consider a friend, but somebody who has really had a profound influence on both Jordan and uh, and my career. So, uh, Mickey, man, I want to turn it over to you. I want you to give a little bit of background of what you're doing because we're going to get into your experiences. And, um, you know, you really have a lot to offer. You've worn a lot of hats in baseball. So take it over, buddy. Yeah, well, uh, my name is Mickey Calloway. Um, like Ryan said, I had the honor to, to work with these two guys uh, with the Anaheim Angels or the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, they're called now, um, <laughs> a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be able to play this game for a long time and transitioned into, into the coaching realm of things uh, in 2010. Um, spent a few years in the minor leagues as uh, a pitching coach and a pitching coordinator for the Cleveland Indians and then moved up to the big league level um, as the pitching coach for, for uh, five years, I believe, uh, in Cleveland. And then I went on to manage a little bit in New York uh, for the Mets and then uh, joined you guys in 2020 uh, with the Angels. So, uh, you know, very, very fortunate to be able to to be in this game that, that we all love so much for such a long time and uh, gain a ton of friends and, and a ton of experience uh, through the, through this uh, game that uh, is, is the best game in the world. Totally. I want, I want to turn it over to Jordan before I talk and um, you know, Jordan, I just want you to talk a little bit about what Mickey, you know, had done for you in your career and the things you've learned from him. Cause I want to go into that too. I think that's important for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, there's obviously the people who give you the opportunities to get into pro ball. And those guys had a huge impact on, you know, me getting into pro ball. But the, there was two people that come to mind right now, specifically in the Angels, that number one gave me a platform at the big league level and made me, in a sense, feel, you know, confident, comfortable at the big league level. Number one was Tyler Skaggs. Um, in yeah. 2017, that's when I first started going to the big leagues a couple times a month here and there. And I'd be walking through, and you guys know how that weight room is in, in Anaheim or the, the stadium. There's coach's office, weight room on one side, food room on the other. I'm just trying to lay low, keep my head in, below the trench line there. And Skaggs would go out of his way to pull me into the weight room, give me a hug, let me know I'm valued. Hey, I'm really glad you're here. Get in here. Come come watch us do some stuff. And then the other one was obviously Mickey. And, you know, in spring training, Mickey got brought in. Is a weird scenario. It's like, hey, here's Jordan Oseguera. This guy's going to start going over all this data, showing you this, showing you that. And I'm giving you my perspective. Mickey gives me his. We're able to pick each other's brains. And the great thing with it is most guys in baseball, and again, I say this is a blanket statement. It's not the way that it goes, obviously. I'm just using this as an example. There's a lot of ego because there is a lot of money. There's a lot of, 
hey, I don't want to lose my position, where Mickey just goes, hey, I'm going to learn something from you. What do you have to teach me? And then how can I give you my two cents on that? And what can I teach you? And that was always one of my biggest things there was there wasn't like an ego of, well, that's not how I look at mechanics or that's not how I look at pitch development. It's, yeah, you got something to add. We're all trying to win. And I remember we had this big spring training meeting. There's actually a really cool picture of it that someone sent me where you're giving a talk in spring training in the locker room. I'm sitting in a random locker over there. And I remember that that exact talk, you're going over it and you're saying, I don't care if you do things this way, if you do things that way, if you like this, if you like that, all I care about is we're all pulling on the same rope to win. And that was a nutshell of, of your conversation. And that's that's one of the big, big things I took away is just the less ego you have, the more you're willing to just open up, listen and hear what others have to say. You're going to learn a lot. You're never going to be disappointed in it. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to dovetail on that. So. You know, the thing that I, I really was an, admiring about uh, making and in awe, what Jordan is saying is correct. Like, egos come from people being successful. And Mickey deserves to be egotistical. And he wasn't, which was very shocking. You know, there I won't name names, but we had some pretty decorated people um, from the old school world of baseball and um you know, that was so important for them to be right. And, and, and I really, you know, I watched Mickey in one of our meetings and he stood up and he said, Hey, you know, in everybody in the room, he said, I don't care, you know, about who's right. I just need somebody to, to say something and do the right thing. He valued everybody. He's like, you know, you could be a clubhouse attendant. You could be whoever you are in the game. If you have insights that are going to make the team better, you got to speak up. And, um, you know, it really kind of put me at ease. Like there's a term that we use in baseball. A lot of people talk about it and they talk about it in business too. And baseball is weird because it's a business, but it's not like a real business, but the term's called psychological safety. Okay. And for people that don't know about what psychological safety is, it is, it is having um, the environment in which you can complain. You can have conflict. Um, your, your, uh, opinion is valued you're not always subordinate or you know you have to be a servant to everybody and um, it's very hard for some people to establish that uh environment and and right from the get-go you know mickey did that you know in in he, he just allowed you to have um clear conversations with with players um and he wanted you included i remember when we first started talking about motion analysis and, and people who didn't know what jordan did but jordan digitized and, and for those of you in the biomechanics world who have you know put dots on people's elbows and shoulders and knees and hips and, and calculated angles from video i mean he did that maybe twenty thousand, thirty thousand data points you know he just he, he evaluated pictures at you know almost daily um and, uh, and, you know, Mickey's just like, Hey man, um, guys, you know, this stuff, uh, I don't want to be the messenger. Just, just come in and tell them, talk to the guys, you know, I'll be there. I'll support you. And I was like, oh. you know, that just doesn't happen because there's a lot of territorial elements about working with players. And, uh, and I also didn't get that atmosphere from him. This is when you tell it that, that there's somebody's a really high quality coach and somebody has got a lot of uh accomplishments behind them is that he just doesn't want to he doesn't want to put his name on anybody didn't want to do that and he was just like exactly in his philosophy he just lived it he's like i don't care who's right just mention the right thing you know you know and be a part of it and i remember being in that room and it's like we're all talking to the player and the player's getting it and um 
you know, the other, the other good thing is that when he talks to players, he doesn't make comparisons, you know, and all of us, like if I was in my workplace and uh, you know, I'm working with Jordan and in, let's say Dugan, our president is saying, Hey, wish you, you know, if you want to get better at this, go check out what Jordan's doing, doing X, Y, and Z. He never made a comparison that way. And I noticed when we were communicating about mechanics, um, they look to really optimize what those people do. So I really took it from there, man. And, and he's so consistent in his personality. That is something too, that I think is important as a, as a coach. Um, I see that as a manager. I think that's what made him such a solid managerial candidate and, and, and being uh and leading a team is that I just, you know, my experience with him, he was even keel. He was patient. He listened and he never really changed the demeanor. You knew what you were getting with him every day. It wasn't unpredictable. It wasn't emotional. So, you know, these are just some things, you know, that Jordan and I witnessed about Mickey. We take into our, our own career, but I want him to start telling some stories. So I want to start Mickey. Um, you know, we pumped your tires for a little bit. So I want you to, I, I want you to, um, you know, talk about, you know, your playing days and you, you play in some of the eras with so, like some of the greats, like, you know, talk about how you face certain batters, you know, the, the superstars, not that you weren't a superstar, but you know, you're talking about, you were, you know, going against guys like A-Rod, right. And, um, you know, McGuire probably in that era, right. You were seeing some of those talents. So go for it, man. Yeah, well, well, first of all, thanks for the kind words, guys. Uh, you know, I was probably that way because you guys were probably just as good of players as I was and probably <laughs> could have performed at the major league level as good as I did. But, uh, you know, no, I think that, uh, you know, all those things you talked about before we get into what you asked um, is because, you know, I always did everything for the love of the game. And, and like you said, I didn't care who was right. I cared that we got it right. Yeah, and that that's our duty as a coach is to get it right. You know, whether it comes from Jordan, whether it comes from Ryan, whether it comes from another uh, player, let's get it right. And and to to use the collective the mind of of the organization, um, you you can't ever go wrong with that. So you know, everybody around me made me better, and and I was fortunate enough to be with organizations that that put people around people that would always make each other better. So I wanted to, to listen to the, to those people that they, they surrounded me with. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's humbling to be around a, a guy like Jordan, a guy like yourself that, that knows so much about their uh, part of the game. And it would be silly for, for, for me who didn't know much about those uh, sides um, to, to not listen and to not use, use uh, you know, every bit of your knowledge to, to help the player. Then I'm doing the player an injustice. So, um, you know, I think if, as long as we all love this game, uh, there, there are no egos and we do it for the love of the game instead of for yourself. Because like you said, I never did it, you know, for credit. I, I could care less about that. I wanted the player to get the credit and I wanted the organization to win. And I think if, if, if everybody takes that approach – um, that, that's what it takes to be a true, true winner. Um, you know, the way they th do things in Cleveland is, is a pretty special place. And, and there's a lot of what we we're talking about right now going on there. And that's why they have such great success with, with a, a very small payroll. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, 
love the game, man. Love, love to coach. And, and it's all about the player at all times. And if you take that approach, I think you're going to be the best coach you can possibly be. Um, but yes, yes, I grew up uh, or came up in an era where uh, the ball was flying out of the ballpark pretty easily for some people. Um, <laughs> and uh, especially when I pitched. Um, but, but, you know, it was, it was a time where the game was really, really exciting. That, that's oh, for sure. I mean, at any time, you know, guys are going to hit the tape measure shot, shots off you. Um, and, and another thing I liked about the game is um, nothing was pigeonholed. As well as guys could hit the ball out of the park, there'd be the guys that would lay down a bunt hit on you yeah. um, in, in a situation where, where it was called for in a game to, to scratch that one run across. So, you know, obviously the game has changed um, a little bit. And I'm not saying it's changed for the worse, maybe for the better as far as trying to, to maximize your ability to score runs and maximize your ability to strike guys out. Um, but it's definitely a different game today. And uh, it would be interesting to see um, players from the past go and play in, in, in the game today and see what the difference would be. But uh, what a great era I got to play in watching those guys um, you know, facing guys like Alex Rodriguez. I got to face Alex Rodriguez when I was um, 10 years old, when I was 12, 14, 16, um, all the way up to the big league level. So, so I think I have video of, of both of us uh, playing against each other when we were 10, uh, sitting over in the closet. So um, just <laughs> what, what, a great, what a great era to play in, and I really enjoyed it immensely. If you don't, if you don't mind talking, just on the big differences between the minor leagues when you were coming up as a player, as opposed to the minor leagues now, because it's not still like the minor leagues are a great place to be at this point in time. But if you compare the minor leagues now to where you were when you were playing in the minor leagues, it's like, you know, five star dining compared. Yeah. Oh, it's night and day, and and especially the nutrition. You you mentioned dining. The nutrition is unbelievable. We were we were drink we were. Uh, you know, drinking water, eating soup and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, maybe a tuna fish sandwich if you were lucky and uh, the team wanted to splurge that day. Um, but, uh, you know, weight training was totally different. Right. Um, they j had just started to maybe introduce um, strength coaches uh, when I was, you know, maybe in triple A. Um, wow. The coaching. Wait, what year was is, that, Nikki? If you, if you um, I, I, so I got drafted in 96. There wasn't much strength training going on um, as far as like having your own strength coach at each level. Then by about 99, uh, when I was in AAA and making my major league debut, that's when you started seeing a strength coach at certain levels. I think wow. maybe we just had it in AAA at that time. And then it was just your basic here, follow this program, go lift. It's kind of overseen a little bit. Was and it mostly go out seen by the, the trainer, or was it, it was a dedicated strength coach? Yeah, so so uh, the first few years, ninety six through ninety eight, I think it was the trainer kind of overseeing everything and giving you your little card that had your workout program. Um, and then uh, in ninety nine, I think we had our own strength coach 
that kind of oversaw what uh, you were supposed to be doing in the training room. But, you know, you'd, you'd go on the road and you had to go to a random gym and they'd give you times, you know, hey, get up at nine today and go go lift at this random gym and this random city. The gym um, bus. And, the gym yeah, bus. I hated exactly. that. Yeah. <laughs> and now almost every facility has a place to go work out, it seems. And uh, right. just the ability to get the best out of everybody's ability is so much greater these days. Um, coaching wise, strength training, nutrition. Um, you know, we talked about Cleveland a little bit and Cleveland's philosophy is since we not a big market team and we don't have the money to spend on all these players, let's put that money into things that will help players get the most out of their ability. So they're doing cryo chambers and, you know, they're, they're, they're doing it all. They have the float tanks and, and they make sure that nothing uh, goes, um, you know, unturned to make sure you can get the best out of, out of your ability. Um, so the, the evolution of the uh, development of a player has, has gone, I mean, it's improved by 200% since, since the days when I was playing. Wow, man. So, I want to ask you too, you know, kind of like on the teammate side of things, who 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 would you say was like an outstanding teammate that that you played with? And just yeah, why? Troy, why? Yeah, Troy Troy Percival was one of the best. You know, when I was when I was with Anaheim in the big leagues, I got to start a little bit. I got to spend some time in the bullpen, and Troy Percival. He made everything every second of the day intense and only about winning. I mean, he was the first guy to the ballpark. You know, he was the first guy to support you. He was the first guy to get on you when you needed it. And to have a leader like that is, is one of the reasons the, the Angels won the, won the championship in, in um, you know, 2002, because you had a leader like that. Darren Erstead was another one. You know, the intense focus – and the ability to be such a great teammate and be supportive of even a young guy like myself at the time um, was unbelievable. You know, there's guys like Bobby Witt, who I played with in Tampa Bay. He was the same way. So there's no, there's no secret why Bobby Witt's kid is now a superstar athlete, because Bobby Witt is one of the best guys, you know, I've ever been around. Um, to help a young player to try and develop. Uh, it's, you know, Norm Charlton, there's guys that, that I can list, uh, you know, it's a, it's a mile long. And I tried to take something from everyone I was ever around, whether it was, you know what, I might not want to do this, but I definitely want to do these things. Um, it's kind of like what we talked about with coaching earlier. You want to take something from everybody that's around you at all times to, to make yourself better. Yep. Amazing. That's awesome, man. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you too, is, you know, from your playing days, how have the coaching philosophies changed from you being a player and then going into, you know, being a major league pitching coach and, and kind of the evolution of that? Yeah. So, so like we talked about a little bit earlier, when I was playing, there wasn't a ton of instruction. You know, it was more the mental side of the game a little bit. And then, you know, let's kind of leave this guy alone for his, uh, you know, first first half season in pro ball. Um, There's a great story that Greg Maddox tells. 
um, when he signed and he went to short season ball, his pitching coach wasn't talking to him much, wasn't talking to him much of the bullpens, blah, blah, blah. And Greg went up to him and said, Hey man, why are you not coaching me? And it's like, well, it's everybody's philosophy. Let's see what this guy's got. You know, the scout signed you for a reason. Let's see what he's got and kind of be hands off for your first half, half season in pro ball. And he was like, no way, man. I want some instruction. I want that knowledge. And, and that's the guy that taught Greg Maddox his changeup mm-hmm. and, and turned him maybe. And, you know, not that Greg Maddox wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer anyway, but he learned his best pitch in that half season of pro ball. And I think that has, is what has changed the most over the years is we're way more hands-on. There's way more technology. Right. Players know how to use the technology much better. You know, to be honest with you, you know, if, if we – back then, some things kind of sounded crazy when, when people started talking about using video and, and things like that because – we didn't grow up in a technological age like mm-hmm. like these players did. You know, I, I've never played a video game in my life, you know, <laughs> so uh, I don't even know how to work a control. So it would have been weird to, to for me to try and use some of the stuff because my background, I wasn't raised with that. But these guys, they know everything about technology. They have access to the Internet at their fingertips. So they're always researching things sometimes that can be bad <laughs> because you know they're they're can you know can, can confuse themselves a little bit um by looking at too much stuff so that was one of the challenging things um when i started coaching is is i think guys could get on the internet a little bit and kind of make their mind race and i'd have to reel them back in and say hey look i know you looked at this i can tell by your verbiage you were looking at this uh, on the internet, this might not necessarily apply to you. Uh, but, uh, you know, like you said earlier, we, we have to listen to what they say because I love that they were thirsting for that knowledge and getting out there and researching things. But if you don't understand it, you could put yourself in a little bit of a compromising situation. It would be like me trying to go over with Jordan and, and go over all those 20 thousand data points that you talked about and try to do that i couldn't do that that's why jordan i'm like here get over here man i don't know what the heck this is you're the expert get over here and explain this to us so we don't mess ourselves up um but uh i love the way that that coaching has evolved because it puts us the coach in a position where we can really really help players more and, and we're way more proactive because we can get out there and research stuff for ourselves. And, and you have to research stuff for yourself because if not, your player is going to be bringing up stuff that you've never heard of and you're going to, you're going to feel like you're not capable of, of coaching him. So, you know, it, it, it makes your job way more uh, fun and you get a lot more satisfaction out of it these days because of – the technology and and the ability to go make yourself a quasi expert in in something because it's at your fingertips over the internet. Yeah. To get, give some examples on that. I remember in that 2020 season, we had a player 
he was a up and down big league guy. And it was just like, he was always changing a pitch grip. I remember it was a split finger. I'm not going to use names obviously, but he always be getting on YouTube. He'd be like, oh, I saw this on YouTube. This guy yeah. said to throw a split finger like this. And I remember we had some coaches going, we just need to find a way to like ban YouTube from this guy. Like, how do we just get him off YouTube? And I remember Mickey's response was, well, what if we just tried to educate him a little bit more? Because we, we obviously know how to teach split fingers. Let's sit down with the guy. Let's make sure that we're pointing him in the direction that we think is good. And then I had a similar situation pop up that I learned from that experience. Cause that kid ended up turning around. He finished the season really well in the big leagues. We obviously missed the postseason. We were in a little bit of a chase there for a little bit, but we didn't get in, but it is what it is. And I remember right now I, I go back, you know, looking back to that 2020 experience, I have a player that I'm working with now who's like every single week, it's something new. And I said, look, I know you're trying this from this group. You're trying that from this group. You're trying that. It's like, if you're, if you're sailing a ship and you're in a storm and you're just like changing your rudder all the time, you end up just going in a circle. You don't make any ground. If you're going to get out of the storm, you have to set the rudder, hold it, go for a couple weeks, evaluate you're either in the right direction or you're not. And then we can make an adjustment. But but give something some time. And that's kind of the message you really relayed to this player was, hey, let's try this one split finger grip for two weeks, three weeks, and then we'll find out if it's better or worse. We won't know if we keep just kind of grasping at something new all the time, but it's good to have that knowledge. We want players to want to know because that's the thing. Not all, Nobody knows everything. Everybody's got a piece of the puzzle. And if we come in there with the, with the belief that our one way to teach a split finger is the only way to teach a split finger, we're going to ruin 90% of kids. When it comes down to it. So that's one of the big things. I was able to take that lesson. I remember hearing you go over that. And instead of being confrontational with the player, you said, let's collaborate here. Let's get on the same page. Let's come up with a, up with a plan to evaluate and actually assess. And now I'm going to go run over and close my blinds before my dog tries to jump through the window. I'll be back. But keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So Jordan, Jordan brought up a great point. That's our job is to be their rudder and to steer them in the right direction and their job is to be open to anything and everything. You know, I think that, um, coachability, um, is, is a, an important, um, it is very important for a player because he's got to be open and, trust what you're saying to him. And if you build that trust and, and he's a coachable kid, you can steer him the way that he needs to be steered when it needs to be steered. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that uh, being a coach that allows players to coach themselves right. is, is the way to be. I remember when I started coaching going, man, if I only knew what I know now, I would have been a hundred times better. I would have played in the big leagues for 10 years. And there's no doubt in my mind that that would have happened. So my goal was always to get those, my players to the spot I was when I started coaching while they're still playing so they can coach themselves. So I want them to be out there on the internet. I want them to be researching things. I want them to try and coach themselves. I want them to fail three times before I mention anything to them in the bullpen mm -hmm. to see if they can make that adjustment on their own. And if I can get them to be able to coach themselves and make in-game adjustments when they need to and make in-bullpen adjustments on their own, and I can 
you know, it may seem like I'm just sitting back doing nothing, but I think I'm allowing the player to, to get the best out of his ability. You know, sometimes the best coaching philosophy is to pull back a little bit and let the player do his own thing. Um, but yeah, like, like Jordan said, when you get a guy that's been researching on the internet, listen to everything he's got to say, because when you listen to people, sometimes in return, they'll listen to you when, when you speak and when you speak, maybe it's a little bit more impactful because you've been listening a a little bit more than talking. Mm -hmm. So I think that in that case, what Jordan's talking about, you have to sit down, you have to allow this player to he's been he you think about it he's been sitting there for weeks and weeks on the internet trying to figure something out if you shut it down right away he's going to be like what the heck i put all this work in and you're not even listening to what i have to say or not even um trying to uh you know understand all those hours i put in and, and you're just shutting it down immediately so we have to be open to anything and everything a player Uh, wants to do we have to understand it we have to do our own research on it and then steer them in a direction that's going to be most beneficial for the player yeah yeah this this is just another side topic on that i remember we had a similar instance pop up where it's like it's about the relationship building with the player and it's about creating that trust and a lot of it is listening and if a player is not coming to you and going well how do how do I get that help with my split finger from, you know, Mickey, Jordan, whoever it may be, we need to ask, okay, well, why is, why are we not the trusted source? What do we need to learn on our end? And it, I remember it's the same thing. It's like, look, if our players are going outside the org, then we need to ask how we make ourselves improved. Right. And it was always like, how do we take that responsibility? Where as opposed to a lot of coaching as well, it's that guy's fault. It, you, you wanted to go, how do we make this about us? So the players know they've got a question on, I don't know, throwing a, Two pound ball. Let's find out as much as we can about two pound balls. So that was one of the things I always appreciated with that as well. One, one. Of yeah, the that's things- right. Oh, go, go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, you know, I've been at, over at Kyle Body's place in Seattle. I've been, you know, the to the pitching ranch and in, in Houston. Um, you have to go find out what these guys are learning, and uh, I've learned a ton of stuff from those outside sources. And I always encouraged my guys. Go see whomever you want, and then I'll work and collaborate with that person to make you be the best you can possibly be. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That I, that's so important. I mean, I was going to go and ask you another question, but um, you know, we all share players in their player development. You know, uh, in, in pro baseball, you get players for a certain part of the year, and. When they leave, they work with somebody who they've trusted. They might have worked with them since they were 10, you know. And um, I think it hurts when you have that disconnect. When there's a miscommunication or the players in the middle between the philosophies of their private coach or their their offseason coaching, you know, and the organizational philosophies of what they want from the player and obviously the, the pro coach. And I think that is what you're saying is huge is not only trying to learn um, about the strategies of these outside coaches, but to form the relationship so that you can, you can come together. I mean, we had a situation, Jordan can attest. We had a player that was, he wasn't performing very well. 
and he wasn't getting better in our organization. And he had gone out to work with a private coach and the private coach had completely redefined the way he threw talking like a guy who's a high three quarter. And then he was more of a sling kind of guy. Um, but he was out of pain. His arm felt comfortable. He had a little bit more action on his baseball. And when he came back, you know, and, and, and there, there must've been something missed between look, you know, reviewing what the kid's doing and trying to get video from them or communicating. So when he comes on site and he throws his first bullpen and it's videoed and I remember it was sent to the front office and they're like, who is this pitcher? Like we, we didn't, this is not what we drafted. Right. So it puts a lot of pressure on your coordinators, your pitching coaches to say, well, now we have to undo this, this pitcher. Right. And then the pitcher um, is trying to find his old delivery again after working on it, a different delivery for four or five months, you know, and um, he got hurt. You know, there's just, it, it's just those kinds of things. Seeing that it's like, you know, there has to be, especially there's so much technology and the ability to communicate a lot more effectively and fast. You know, can't put the player in the middle, you have to be able to collaborate and we have to come to a common ground about, Hey, this is, this is, we pay you. We're the ones who employ you. This is the person you pay. We have to make this right all together um, or else the player suffers, you know, and that's, you know, I'm glad that you, you know, you mentioned that because a lot of people are out there. We we have a lot of people in the professional baseball world that listen to this, you know, and, and it's funny because Jordan and I work in both worlds. You got the people in the private uh, sector who think, man, these people in, in professional baseball, they have no clue. You know, they might not know the player the way that person knows the player. You know, and then the opposite side, it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this guy's paying this dude. And <laughs> it's completely, you know, undoing everything we're doing. Like, it's this is a funny world that, that Jordan and I, I mean, on a consulting level. To, to give you give you an example, I just had a, gosh, it was probably on Monday or Tuesday, I had a phone call with a facility. I won't say where they are. They'll, they're listening. They'll obviously know the conversation. <laughs> but he called me and goes, hey, I got my minor leaguers coming in right now. And, you know, I'm trying to do this and this and this with them. But the org says they want this, this, and this is what they gave him on his exit interview. What do, what do I do? I said, I would ask that guy for the farm director's information and be like, hey, if this guy improves on these things, is he still going to be around or is he still going to be like a release candidate? Like, What is this guy to your org? Because if we increase him going this way and it's not what you guys are looking for, it ends up in the same scenario we just talked about where that player is now either hurt or he's released or whatever the situation is. As opposed to going, hey, let's find out what that org wants. Let's move the move the needle in that direction. Because now if you move the needle in that direction, most organizations are going to give that guy another shot to stick around. If you don't, not only is that guy out of playing baseball, but now you're out of a client as a coach. So it's like, yeah, you may have made him better. Maybe he increased his swing and miss on that specific pitch type. But if it's not what the org <laughs> wants, it's not fitting their vision and their philosophy. And that's where those competing aspects come in where it's like, you also need to look at it from the private side of going, you need to keep getting guys better. But if they're in an organization, you need to get them better for what that org wants, because that's going to keep that guy coming to your facility and keep your doors open long-term. So there's that big push and pull where it's like, nobody's got it figured out. Everyone's necessarily they're kind of playing with the same deck of cards. It's all just what, what order those cards come up in. But when people start thinking they have it all figured out, we just run into problems and the player is the one that suffers. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I want to switch gears, Mickey, because I know we're we, we're maybe going a little long, but that's okay. 
I think I want to tap into your experience of coaching in the regular season versus the playoffs. Cause right now we're in world series time. You know, it's exciting to watch these two teams. I actually, and you've had a lot of experience in the postseason, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is pretty cool. So, yeah. I don't so, think yeah. people realize how much this guy's been in the postseason. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. neat. Well, I mean, it's, it's exciting. I mean, I, I moved from Philly to Arizona, so I, you know, I'm, I'm partial to them winning the world series, but you know, I've always, I, I was in the playoffs with the Orioles in my first year with them in 2012. And, um, I really, because being a strength coach, we were kind of on the inside. We never heard the conversation. We definitely weren't in the dugout. You know, the the communications, like, you know, mound visits. How, how did those things change, you know, from, from one type of the season to now a really high stakes, you know, time of the year? Well, that, that's a great question. And they do change. Um, the playoffs are such a different animal it's unbelievable Mm -hmm. the adrenaline the excitement everything is totally different your spin rate's going to be different your velocity is going to be different how far your breaking ball goes in correlation to the back of the plate is going to be different because it's it's almost like going and and when you're pitching it's almost like going when you go to Colorado, you have to start your pitches in a different spot. Oh, yeah. Because they're going to be different than you're used to. And the playoffs, it seems, are a little bit like that because of the adrenaline, the ability to spin the ball. I think we saw some controversy in the beginning of the playoffs this year about spin rates being up. And everybody was like, oh, this guy's spin rate's up two, 300 RPMs everybody's spin rate is up two or 300 RPMs. They were just singling that guy out because you have adrenaline and I'm sure it's different for some people. I'm sure you get a Max Scherzer who's been there, done that, or, or somebody who's pitched in the postseason for a long time, maybe theirs doesn't. But if you get a rookie, a guy that's a stud and he's never pitched in a playoff game before, you might see something totally different. You might see 98. Yeah. instead of 94 yeah. because it's such a different animal. So having or knowing that when you're talking to a player during the playoffs, you have to back off a ton. Yeah. Okay. It's all about mentality, man. It is not so, about. They're so high. You mean they're so elevated. Yes, and Absolutely. You yeah. You back off on the information a little bit. You make sure you simplify the information. And you make sure that you get those certain points across. Like this guy swings at a breaking ball first pitch 6% of the time. So let's lead him off with a breaking ball every at-bat. Those type things. When we're throwing to Aaron Judge, you better make sure you throw it at his chin. Instead of his, you know, chest, just to make sure you get it up there. Yeah. Um, you keep it a little bit more simple when you're talking about the information and the game plan and things like that. Because come on, man, they're out there. Yeah. Everything's going a mile a minute. And if Crowd you add back. on to that, it's going to be a nightmare. So you pull back a little bit. And, and one of the – this story is – how I 
know this to be true. And this didn't happen during the playoffs, but when we won 22 games a row in Cleveland, we were on a roll. We were pitching good, blah, 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 going into this 22 games. We got seven games into the winning streak, and I stopped doing any and all advance reports. <laughs> I didn't do an advance report for the next 12 to 15 games. Wow. And we won 20 and 22 in a row. Holy because you, they were on a roll. It didn't yeah. matter what the report was. These guys were on a roll. I think we gave up less runs than we hit home runs during that stretch. Wow. So, you know, I think we gave up 19 runs in 22 games or something silly like that. It was crazy. And that's without any information at all. Yeah. And I realized at that moment, like, when guys are going good and there's just that thing, that thing that's clicking – don't talk to them, man. Leave them alone. Because all yeah. I can do as a coach is mess them up. It's like going to a guy and talking to him in the middle of a no-hitter in the fifth <laughs> inning. I'm going to stay on the other end of the dugout. When they're on a roll like that, let them go. Let them be the, the athlete, the, the performer, that, that the non-cerebral performer that, that's out there competing right now. Because when they are in that um, mindset – that's when they're going to be at their best. They're going to have that fluid body mechanic. They're going to have that relaxed look on their face. They're going to look like Corey Kluber or Jacob DeGrom when they're out there pitching, no matter who they are, because they, they're just doing it without thinking. Yes. You know, I'm a big golfer, and I've been trying to get my golf game going here lately. And if I'm sitting there thinking about my swing and, oh, i got to make sure my wrist didn't cupped and i got to flatten it out and I go hit the ball <laughs> – it, it, you know, I'm not doing myself any good. When I go out there, I know I've been practicing. I'm in a good spot, and I just swing the club and let the ball get hit by the club. Then, then I hit a pretty pure shot. So pulling back in the playoffs, I think, is very important as a coach. Wow. And just being there and supporting them and having fun and don't come to the ballpark tenth. You know, you talked uh, about it earlier, like having that even keel every single day. That's very important during the season. Very important. But it's way more important in the playoffs. Come, have fun, stay relaxed, make sure your players are relaxed so they can go out there and be the best they can be. You know, I think we saw some of it. There was a few relievers in the postseason this year that dominated during the regular season for whatever reason they couldn't throw a strike to save their life in the postseason and and that tells me there might have been some stress um some stressors around um not only is it hard just to do that with the crowd noise and stuff like that but if there's other people putting some stress on guys on a daily basis being too uptight um things like that like this is a game and you got to go out and perform and to win. And uh, the way to do that is to be relaxed and, and have confidence that you've worked on the things you need to work on. That's awesome. Um, what one thing, real quick, because you're talking about those those analytics, those reports, different things. There's a point where you're just like, "Hey, I'm I'm not doing them. We're we're on a roll. These guys aren't asking for them. We're just gonna go get them." 
So with that, if you're going to with the, with the data and analytics, with how much it keeps progressing and progressing and progressing, baseball has this tendency of swinging pendulums of where it's all of one thing and nothing of the other. And then it'll swing back the other way I've noticed. So with that, if you're going to make your blend in your, in your mind, like what, what data is going to help you evaluate that player to be ready for the game? What data does the player actually need? Is there any like two things, three things, or, Hey, just this one thing, what do you need to know? And I know that's going to vary by guy to guy, but if you're doing an advanced report, you know, what, what information would you be given? You know, so I want the player, the pitcher, first and foremost, to understand how good his pitches really are. We would sit them down. Even if these guys thought their breaking ball was really good, we might show them, hey, look, your breaking ball is not very good at all. And I've had a lot of players like that, that you had to sit down, you had to be totally honest with them and tell them and kind of rank their pitches in order. And I wanted them to understand that there should be a certain plan of attack for them, no matter who the hitter is. This is where your fastball plays the best. This is the quadrant you should throw it in. This is where your your slider plays the best. This is when you should throw it. After that, I want to lay on layer on information that's pretty simple based on what the hitter can and can't do. Um, and you kind of present everything to the group that way, the starters and the relievers. And then I always like to take the starter and try to mix both of them. So I would say, hey, look, this is this is your best arsenal ranked in this order, and this is how you should use it. And then if we're talking about against Mike Trout, this is what we're going to do. And then I would allow the bullpen coach or want the bullpen coach to go and do the same thing with the reliever. So I really want them to first and foremost focus on their own plan of attack, no matter who the, who the, who the hitter is, and then layer on little bits of information about the hitter's weaknesses that we may be able to expose if it lines up with our plan of attack already. You know, when you're facing Mike Trout, Okay, wait, wait. There's I got not... to stop you. I'm sorry, Mickey, because I, I do. I want people to know exactly what you said in that. Okay, there was a very, there's a very big distinct difference, and I've noticed. Yeah, I already took a few notes, yeah, so I'm, I'm ready to. In, in terms of how to give information to a player, I, you know, it, it's player first, which is good. They got to know themselves. Okay, that's great because now you're they're, they're better self evaluators then. But what you just said there is you then go to hitters' weaknesses. I see a lot of people, and I've had pitchers complain to me that they focus too much on hitters' strengths. So now, you know, here I am as a pitcher. My brain is going loss aversion. I don't want to throw it there. I'm afraid to throw it. That's a red zone. You're telling them, hey, we're going to give you the blue information. We're going to give you where they're not hitting. Channel your brain there. Don't worry about what they're good at. Let's focus on what they're not. Go ahead, man. That was awesome. Real, real quick on that. You remember Jason Brown? I knew Jason Brown from, gosh, back in 2005, probably when he was, I know Ryan, we're going to mention him. He was working for Tom House at the time as a bullpen catcher. <laughs> I remember when he got a job with the Yankees, he came back and he's like, man, we leave these meetings. And he's like, we have a Raldis Chapman or who, you know, like 
at the time, um, uh, Robinson, it's like we have the best relievers in baseball. And they leave these meetings going, man, every single hitter I face is Superman. It's like, you're one of the best pitchers to ever walk the face of the earth. I don't think you need to worry about it. You know, it's like the nine hitter apparently is a Hall of Famer all the time. But go on. Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. That is essential. So what we're talking about here is in every report I've ever given, any talk I've ever talked to a player with, any mound visit I've ever made, is I only talked about where you can throw the ball. Mm-hmm. I've never once ha- had a red dot <laughs> on you know, a red dot on a uh, strike zone. Don't throw the ball here because that's what they're going to remember. Sure. <clears throat> my zone when I when I did my 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 heat maps for our pitchers to on where they should throw the ball it was only green areas. Now there yeah, were some man. that weren't, I did. I just left out the red. I didn't want to yeah. put it on there Yeah. because all I wanted them to see was, okay, this is where I can throw the ball. Because like you said, once you start saying, oh my gosh, don't throw Mike Trout down and in. Yeah. Your head's going whether there. you're, yeah, your head's going there. And if it's, it's like hitting a golf ball. Don't hit it in the lake on the left. You're going to hit it in the lake on the left. Yeah. Instead of going, you know what? I'm going to hit a nice little draw down the right side of the fairway. So always, always make sure that you're talking about the pitcher's strengths and the hitter's weaknesses. Yeah. Um, and then and then make sure that they kind of line up a little bit. You know, because if I'm not very good, Mike Trout is so freaking good. Mm-hmm. If my fastball doesn't play up in the zone, even though Mike Trout might not be a great high ball hitter or didn't used to be when he first started playing, when I had to make a game plan against him, if I'm not very good at it, he is Mike Trout. Mm-hmm. I he shouldn't is a try to throw it there either. <laughs> right. I shouldn't try to throw it there because just because it's his weakness. I got to make sure that the hitter's weakness lines up with my strength, oh my <clears throat> if that makes sense. I want to oh, make yeah. sure because in the end, you can't control where the ball goes, what Mike Trout does to the ball. All you can do is say, hey, I had a good approach. I, I gave it my best delivery and then live with the results. And if you pitch to your strengths more often than not, you can live with those results a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I threw my best pitch and Mike Trout hit it out. What, what can I do? You know, he's just mm-hmm. better than me in that moment. But if I try to do something I'm not capable of and Mike Trout hits a homer, I'm not going to be able to live with that very easily. Yeah, man, this is this is so good because it's like, you know, you got to balance weakness to weakness, strength to weakness. So it's like, okay, here's his weakness. There's your weakness. That's probably not (laughs) going to come up with a good result just because of his ability level. But, you know, we're on the topic just before we got to, you know, wrap this up. But we're on the topic of strengths, strength and weaknesses. And I remember when you came into the organization, we were I'm not going to name the name of the company, um, but we had, you know, the first look, Jordan and I, into dynamometry, you know, the force testing for the throwing arm. That was, you know, we Jordan and I saw the value and we were seeing it right away. But you had already had experience in your previous coaching and managing um, where guys were using strength testing. And I remember you saying to me that the pitchers would feel that their arms were more prepared doing doing these doing the tests so i wanted you to just kind of communicate about that because like you know a lot of our company people think 
oh, this is a medical tool or this is a strength tool. We're really it. This is a this is a pitching tool. This is a throwing tool. Pitching yeah. coaches, you know, need to understand this stuff to evaluate the throwing arms to to make the individualized training to prepare them for the day. So I, you know, want to communicate a little bit about that because kind of how you experienced it when you first saw it, and because it was like, whoa, hey, he's familiar with this. I thought I was doing something pretty interesting. So Jordan. And it's like, nah, we haven't seen this before, man. This yeah. is what, you know, our guys, they really liked it. And it was, it was great for us to hear it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously, first and foremost, physical health is the most important thing in in sports, probably in life, um, yes. than, than anything else. Because it doesn't matter how strong you are mentally. If you can't stay healthy to go out there and pitch, that really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how hard you throw or how good your arsenal is if you can't go out there and stay healthy and perform. <clears throat> so this is the most important thing when it comes to pitching is, is arm health and keeping your staff healthy. That's the key to winning. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can do that, you're going to win ball games because you put together this team for a reason because they're the best – players you could get or they're the best players you scouted and if you can keep them on the field you got a pretty good chance of of those guys um having success and your team winning um more times than not so but yeah yeah I was I was familiar with that and the thing that always stood out to me is once we started testing these guys all of a sudden you know when you're testing and using those things that we use you're kind of working the arm out a little bit. You're working the elbow out, you're warming it up, you're stretching it out, you're stretching that shoulder and warming that shoulder up. Some guys started using it as a tool to potentiate before, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a term I learned from Rhino, potentiate those muscles. And I love it. I use it all the time. (laughs) I do it. I go to the gym down the road. And I potentiate my body before I go hit balls in the range and go. Oh yeah, that's that's how that's how much I believe in it because it's unbelievable, you know. And and everybody knows what this is. They just might not not know what to call it. But if you go into the gym, you start working out, man. Those first ten reps of bench or whatever squats, man, they're tough. And all of a sudden, you hit that spot where. Oh, I'm loose now. Well, yeah. you're potentiated. Your muscles yeah. ready to fire and 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 work the right way. So, um, these guys started using that as kind of a pre warm up to even go out and play catch because they liked the way they felt after they did it, you know. And then we kind of it kind of became the IPP, the independent pinching program. But you and I kind of uh, yeah. named that, or you named it, yeah. IPPs, man. That was awesome. But you have to potentiate your body and have an independent pitching program based on who you are and what your body can do to be able to go out there and get the best out of those first 20 throws of the day because you don't ever want to waste a throw. <clears throat> when your first throw of the day – you're lobbing the ball. It's putting a lot of strain on your elbow. It's doing this and it's doing that. So you better be ready to sit there, come set, go through your delivery and deliver the ball to your partner in a way that is productive and is healthy. 
And the only way to do that is, is to potentiate and have that independent pitching program that is probably 45 minutes long before you go and, you know, throw the first ball. You know, when I played, we went out and half stretched, kind of act like we stretched for 10 minutes and we started playing catch, you know, and, and I put modus sleeves on, on all of our guys in Cleveland. And when, when they went out there and just started lobbing the ball, you know, with no form, not getting their lead arm up, not striding out the way they should. Those were the most stressful throws of the day. And they were lobbing the ball because their body wasn't in the right position. Their arm wasn't in that high cock position that allows you to use, you know, your lower half and your trunk to, to deliver the ball to your partner. So it made sense that those are the most stressful because you're just kind of going like this. I mean, it hurts my arm just to do that. Yeah. Um, sitting here, but you have to potentiate your body and you have to warm up the right way. And I think those guys that were getting tested started throwing, man, this kind of, this kind of makes me feel good. So I'm going to continue to do that. And I'm going to make it part of my program every day before I go out and play catch. Amazing. Well, listen, man, this has been an incredible podcast. You know, Jordan and I are very grateful you know, for your time to be on this, I think the people who are listening to this that have hung with us, this is going to be um, really groundbreaking for them to utilize the information and wisdom that you've provided, man. So, you know, we wish you well, all thanks. the best. We're so grateful to see thanks you a lot. talk, man. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. And, uh, you know, I appreciate what you guys are doing out there. Let's educate these guys on, on how to stay healthy and throw the ball the right way. Awesome, man. All right, boys. Jordan, Ryan, take care, buddy. All right. Until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening.